Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Sawadikap. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our group learning program and we come together on Wednesdays in order to meditate together. I would like to welcome all of you to our class. We're going to be doing loving kindness meditation today. I see the title is actually Breathing Mindfulness Meditation, but this is actually a loving kindness meditation. And now that we've started the class, it's not helpful to go in and actually change it and it would kind of require a couple little tweaks. But any of you guys who are joining that are maybe joining for the first time, you can understand that we're gonna be doing loving kindness meditation together, which incorporates breathing mindfulness meditation. But then there's a period of time where we do loving kindness meditation and then back to breathing mindfulness meditation. So I'll guide you guys in a meditation session today, and then I will open up after meditation in order to allow you guys to ask any questions that you might like to ask related to the path to enlightenment. And those can be questions about the Eightfold Path, the Four Noble Truths, the Three Universal Truths, your meditation practice, the Five Precepts, the Three Poisons, the Natural Law of Gamma, anything that I've been teaching in the retreat series, or really anything that you've come across related to anything that I share. Even Bassam and I were talking prior to class about some things. Bassam, if you would like to talk about some of these things in class, you're welcome to ask those kind of questions as well in class. So anything that it is related to the path to enlightenment that you guys are interested in learning and understanding, you're welcome to ask those after meditation. So I'll just like to invite you and welcome you to join for meditation. Perhaps you would like to take a position on the floor or in a chair, depending on what it is that you would like to put the body in a certain position in order to meditate. If you're on the floor, it might mean you have a cushion under your rear and your legs are lightly crossed in front of you. And this helps to keep the circulation going in the legs because if your legs were really tightly crossed, this would inhibit the circulation and eventually would become quite painful. So by having a cushion under your rear, this lessens the angle at your hips, your knees, and your ankles, and then it allows the lower body to be comfortable. Not luxurious and not painful, but comfortable. And then the hands and the arms. You can put these in your lap. The Buddha put his right hand over his left with his thumbs together. And if you put that into your lap, that can potentially be comfortable for you. But if it's not comfortable, some other options are putting your hands on your thighs, maybe palm down, or putting your palms on your knees. Some people like to put their palms up. If you're in a chair with an armrest, you might even just rest your arms on the armrest. Essentially, your lower body and the hands and arms should be completely relaxed during the meditation. Comfortable, not luxurious and not painful, but comfortable. 
the upper body should be erect, not real rigid and not slouched. Neither of those two are in the middle. You would like the upper body to be erect. This helps to keep the mind attentive and alert during the meditation. And you would like the mind to be alert because you need to do the work to train the mind to eliminate certain unwholesome qualities and to arise certain wholesome qualities. So here with your upper body being erect, this keeps the mind attentive and alert during the meditation. Next, you would like to just close the eyes and start breathing in through the nose and out through the nose. Here you're just looking to establish the breath, breathing in gradually through the nose and breathing out gradually through the nose. I'm going to do some chants to ease us into meditation and then I'll be back with some guidance to guide you through the meditation.
here you're just establishing the breath. Breathing in gradually through the nose, experiencing the full breath. And whenever you get to the exhale, breathe out gradually through the nose, experiencing the full exhale. Breathing in. In, out. Breathing in. In, out. Your breath isn't going to necessarily sync up to the guidance that I provide. And that's okay. This is your practice. It's your time to focus on the breath. So wherever you get to your next inhale, breathe in gradually through the nose, experiencing the full breath. And then whenever you get to the exhale, breathe out gradually through the nose. I'm just here as a guide. Your breath is going to be unique to what you're doing in your practice. So I'm just here to remind you to breathe in through the nose, And to exhale through the nose. Once the breath is well established, start fixating the mind on the sound of the breath or the sensation of air moving into the nose. The breath is the present moment. Fixate the mind on the breath, the present moment. Breathing in, in, out. Breathing in, in, out. With the mind fixated on the breath, the present moment, whenever you observe that the mind moves off the breath, cut that off, let it go, and come back to the breath, the present moment. No need to label the thought, judge it, analyze it, or even attempt to figure out where it's coming from. Just wherever you observe that the mind is off the breath, cut that off, let it go, and come back to the breath, the present moment. Breathing in, in, out. Breathing in, in, out. I'm going to be quiet now and let you focus on the breath. Wherever you observe that the mind is off the breath, cut that off, let it go 
and come back to the breath, the present moment. You have nowhere to go. There's nothing to do. No one needs you right now. This is your time to focus on the breath. Breathing in. And out.
Now moving into loving-kindness meditation. Continuing to breathe in through the nose and out through the nose. On the out-breath, repeat this affirmation in the mind. May I be peaceful. May I be safe. May I be well. May I be free of all discontentedness and the suffering it causes. May we be peaceful. May we be safe. May we be well. May we be free of all discontentedness and the suffering it causes.
May my family, friends, and associates all be peaceful. May they be safe. May they be well. May they be free of all discontentedness in the suffering it causes. May all those who I interact with today be peaceful. May they be safe. May they be free of all discontentedness in the suffering it causes. May all those who I don't interact with today 
be peaceful. May they be safe. May they be well. May they be free of all discontentedness in the suffering it causes. May all beings be peaceful. May all beings be safe. May all beings be well. May all beings be free of discontentedness in the suffering it causes. Return back to focusing on the breath as part of breathing mindfulness meditation.
cutting off and letting go any time the mind is off the breath. Breathing in. And out.
I would like to go ahead and open things up to any questions that you guys might have. You can put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, and our moderators will see that and be sure your question gets asked during the class. If you have questions and you're in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions or follow questions directly. Yes, thank you, sir. Uh, it does appear Bossom had to leave early, but he did ask a couple of questions on Zoom. Sure. Uh, the first is, is it required for a practitioner to chant in order to attain enlightenment? No, chanting is not required. It's something that some people might choose to do in order to cultivate the qualities of mind that I talk about when I teach chanting which is it helps to arise mindfulness, awareness of mind. It helps to arise concentration. It helps to exercise the memory. It helps to become aware of the mind and aware of the breath. It helps to cultivate respect and gratitude toward the elders. 
but there's nothing mystical or magical that's happening. If chanting was required in order to get to enlightenment, the Buddha would have included it as part of the full path. There would have been a step that says right chanting, but there isn't that because it's not required. During the lifetime of the Buddha, chanting was only used in order to memorize the teachings because he taught as part of an oral tradition. So twice a a month, basically every two weeks, he would have the students come together and recite his discourses orally through chanting. But somebody today wouldn't need to do chanting in order to get to enlightenment. But all the other factors on the path need to be well developed in order to train the mind and get to enlightenment. Thank you, sir. Um, his follow-up question is, is chanting a kind of rites, rituals, and worship, the third fetter? No, it's not a rite, ritual, ceremony, or worship. Instead, it's cultivating those qualities of mind that I just mentioned. Some people in life, they may look at it as a rite, ritual, ceremony, or worship. People that are practicing chanting, there are some people who surely practice it that way. And they think that it's a mystical, magical thing. But what I do when I teach chanting is I explain people that that's not what it is. But instead, the mind can practice something like chanting in order to get the benefits of chanting without the rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship and understanding that that's not what is going on when somebody's chanting. Somebody else might say, yeah, when I'm chanting, you know, I'm praying to the Buddha or I'm asking for some benefit to come in my life. But that person's mind, it still has that fetter of wrong behavior and wrong observances that the Buddha taught needs to be eliminated. But just because somebody's chanting doesn't mean that they are practicing a right ritual ceremony and worship. It's all about what's going on in the mind. So let me use another example. You could have two people come into a temple and they could both bow to the front of the temple where there's a big statue of the Buddha. And you could talk to one person and say, you know, why did you just bow to the statue? I'm just curious. And they might say, oh, the spirit of the Buddha is in that statue. And if I bow, then the Buddha will help me get to enlightenment and will help me to get rich and help me get wealthy and help me have a longer life. And right there, you know that this person is still having wrong behaviors and wrong observances because they don't understand that that's actually not the truth. Then you could talk to the second person who also bowed. They did the exact same action. But the second person, you say, why did you bow? I'm just curious. What is it that is in your practice that you chose to bow to the statue? And this person might say, oh, I do this out of appreciation for the Buddha. I do this out of gratitude for the work that he did to share these teachings into the world. These teachings have been very beneficial to my life and I have this admiration for him. And while I know that's just a statue and a piece of artwork, I still bow as a way of showing my appreciation and my gratitude and my respect. And it's also a way for me to practice humbleness and being humble and eliminating the ego. So sometimes when people look at someone's practice and they might be judging a certain person, they might say, oh, that person's bowing to a statue. They can't be enlightened. And this is a person trying to judge somebody else of whether they're enlightened or not. Or, you know, they still have wrong behavior, wrong observances. But it's not about judging another person. It's not about determining whether another person's practice is wise or unwise or wholesome or unwholesome. It's about understanding for yourself What is it that you're practicing and why are you doing it? So in this situation, two people are bowing. 
but one person is doing it without wrong behavior and wrong observances. The other person is doing it with wrong behavior, wrong observances. But we shouldn't judge those people for doing that. But this is just an example to show you how two people can be doing exactly the same action, but the mind can be thinking very differently. So chanting is the same thing. There can be two people chanting. One person's doing it as a right ritual ceremony worship, which means that their mind still has that fetter. Another person could maybe choose to chant and do it for the reasons that I teach as part of chanting. And there they're actually cultivating certain helpful mental qualities that are helping them on the path. Thank you, sir. Mm-hmm. And his final question is, how can one eliminate craving for existence, the sixth better? So the way that you do this is you need to eliminate central desire first, because as long as there's central desire in the mind, the mind's going to be holding on to all these different things in the world. Central desire is the fourth fetter, and that one would have been eliminated before one makes it to the upper fetters or the higher fetters. So first, central desire needs to be worked on, which is where craving, desire, attachment is longing and yearning through the sense bases in order to hold on to certain things and wanting these pleasant feelings, essentially. And then in order to eliminate craving for existence, in order to eliminate the sixth and seventh fetter, which is desire for form and desire for formless, this is where you do contemplation of death, where you get comfortable with your own death and realizing that death is part of life. As long as there's birth, there's going to be death. And when you do this death contemplation or this reflecting on death, and you over multiple sessions get comfortable with your own death, then you get to a point where you no longer crave existence anymore because it's not that you are craving non-existence because that's a challenge too. You're not interested in craving existence or craving non-existence, but you wouldn't be able to accomplish that until the mind has deeply practiced to eliminate the pollution of central desire where the mind is no longer holding on to relationships and possessions and all these other things. Because as long as the mind is holding on to all these things, it's going to be very hard to eliminate the desire for existence because the mind is still craving to hold on to this car or this job or this relationship. The mind is still holding on to something in this world. So you can be doing these things all at the same time, working to try to eliminate these various fetters, but the way specifically to eliminate six and seven is to do contemplation of death, realize that this body and this mind is impermanent, this existence is impermanent, and be able to be unfearing and not scared of your own death because you know that that's part of what's going to occur. And as you practice more and more of these teachings, and you're practicing the wholesome qualities that the Buddha taught, and your mind becomes more and more peaceful, you know that you're not causing any harm, so therefore harm isn't coming back to you. Oftentimes, one of the reasons why people fear death is that they know they've done a lot of unwholesome things in this life, and they fear what's going to come next. You know, they might have been taught that there's hell, and there's the animal realm, and the afflicted spirits realm, and they might fear those things depending on how they've been presented to them. And if you've done a whole lot of unwholesome things, and you haven't done the work in order to cultivate the mind and and do wholesome things, somebody may fear death quite a bit. But if you've dedicated a significant portion of your life to learning and practicing, clearing out the unwholesomeness, arising the wholesome, 
and you get more and more peaceful because you're letting go of all these fetters and you're training the mind to be purified and you see that your life right now is very, very peaceful, then you don't have anything to fear because even if you caused harm, which we all did at other points in our life, maybe for the last five years or the last three years or the last 10 years, you know that you haven't been causing any harm whatsoever and your mind is utterly peaceful, your relationships are utterly peaceful, everything in your life's very peaceful, you're not going to have any fear of death whatsoever because you know that you have done the work to purify your mind and you're no longer causing harm. So whatever is going to come next, if anything does come next, because the Buddha left that as an undeclared teaching, but once somebody attains enlightenment and dies, they have no concern about what's going to come next because they know their life is already extremely peaceful and anything that may or may not come next is only going to be as good as what you're currently experiencing or better. And as I mentioned, the Buddha didn't declare what is next for an enlightened being, if anything at all. But oftentimes that fear of death and the craving for existence is because the mind is holding on to all these sensual desires and because there's this fear of death because the person knows that they've done unwholesome things in life and they fear what might be next. But you can let go of that fear by confronting death in a contemplation of death. And you can get to a point where you know you've done enough wholesome things to transform your mind that there's nothing that's going to happen next that is going to be harmful or disastrous because your life is already so peaceful. Yes, thank you, sir. Mm-hmm. And then I see that Tonka has her hand raised. It's going to hurt her question. Thank you, Miranda. I have a question about meditation. I noticed something interesting. When I'm meditating, a lot of times my smartwatch is showing me that I'm in a REM sleep like rapid eye movement. I mean, I'm not sleeping, but I was just, anybody else noticed something like that? I don't have one of those watches, so (laughs) I've never experienced that for myself, but that's interesting that your watch is picking up that it seems like you're sleeping when in reality you're you're meditating. That's pretty cool that it's picking that Mm up. Okay, I just thought it was interesting and wondered if other people noticed something like that. Yeah. Anyway, I have a few other questions if we have time or should I address it in another way? We can discuss them now, but I was just going to add one more thing to what we were just talking about. Is there scientists that are doing research on people that meditate and they're using CAT scans and MRIs and other devices that are much more sophisticated than a smartwatch? And they're coming back with a whole lot of interesting findings as well. You'll find some videos on this if you look in YouTube uh, and you look at different articles that are being written. This whole field, they call it neuroplasticity, where the brain actually physically changes shapes and changes structures. And there's a certain group of those type of scientists and doctors that are studying the brain as it relates to training the mind and meditation. And you can see what they're finding because it's something that it seems like maybe in the last five or 10 years they've been studying now that we have this ability to do this. Because during the lifetime of the Buddha, these machines and this technology didn't exist. But nowadays we have this technology. So if that's something that's interesting to you, you might decide to go out and look at that. Yeah, 
I definitely will because I do feel some changes in my brain. I actually mm-hmm. feel something like it's it's more like uh, electricity or sometimes I mm-hmm. do have a sensations in my brain. At the beginning it would scare me, mm-hmm. but now I'm kind of used to it and uh, I don't worry about it. <laughs> Yeah, all of those changes that are happening, eventually you'll get to the point where the brain is completely changed. You know, you're training the mind, but there's this connection between the mind and the brain. So the brain is is physically changing as you're training your mind to eliminate these pollutions. This feelings that you're having now where you might feel the brain shifting or you might feel what you're describing as electricity in the brain. Eventually you'll get through enough of those changes when you get closer and closer to enlightenment and the mind's enlightened and you'll no longer experience those things anymore. Oftentimes, as we're starting to experience those things, yeah, we might be scared, but then once we get over that, we might actually start associating this electricity and these changes and structures of the brain. We might associate that with progress on the path. At least I know what that's what I did, is that as I was noticing all those shifts and changes, I was associating that with progress on the path. So then when those things stopped and they weren't happening anymore, I didn't think my meditation was as beneficial as it once was. Because before, when I was meditating and I was getting all these different changes and experiences and all these amazing things were happening inside the head, I was like, oh, wow, this is like absolutely wonderful. And then when those things stopped, I was like, whoa, what happened? Like, what's going on? And it took me, you know, a little while to realize, ah, it's impermanent. Of course, I'm not going to be experiencing those sensations permanently. So that's wonderful that you're no longer worried or scared or fearful of that. Now you'll experience those sensations. But as you experience those, don't allow pleasant feelings to arise based on you experiencing those changes in the brain and that electricity feeling, because eventually you're going to get to a point where those things aren't occurring anymore and you're still needing to make progress on the path. Perhaps the structures of the brain have changed and you're not experiencing that sensation in the brain anymore, but there's still progress that you need to make in order to get closer and closer to enlightenment. Okay. Thank you, teacher David. Uh, one, uh, another thing that I had on my mind is, as you know, I work in a retirement home and we have a lot of people that have a cognitive impairment due to different things. And I noticed uh, uh, sometimes we tend to share some funny stories, like us nurses and PSWs, like when something happens, when our residents behave certain way, like we tend to kind of share those stories and uh, a lot of times we have a good laugh. Intent is never ill will. Like, that's for sure, because we really uh, deeply care about those people. But I find that humor helps us uh, just to deal with uh, a lot of, you know, old age, sickness, dying. It's it's not easy to be around that on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. And I find that uh, we, we tend to go to humor to deal with that. So intention is never bad. But I started questioning if sharing those funny stories is uh, in alignment with uh, well-spoken speech, mm-hmm. because sometimes, you know, I don't, I don't know if it's beneficial or not. So I'm not very clear 
uh, about that because I find that humor is very beneficial, especially mm -hmm. in that environment. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, like we are talking about our residents, not to make fun of them, but to make fun of a situation of yeah. absurdity of some uh, circumstances or I don't know. Yeah. So I was wondering uh, uh, what what you could say about that. Yeah, my thoughts on that are if you're laughing at the person, that's different than laughing at the situation, which is what you're describing there at the end. So that's key, making sure that, you know, it's something that you're describing as a situation rather than laughing at the person. Because if we're laughing at the person, that means we're degrading the person, we're slandering the person and things like that. So sometimes, a lot of times, these stories can be told as a way to to help train, you know, new people. And then you kind of remember the story. But these stories can also be shared without mentioning a person's name. And when you're not mentioning a person's name, then for sure there's no ill will, there's no slander there because we're not identifying any one particular person. We're not laughing at the person because we're not even naming the person. We're just describing the situation. And this is a way to ensure that there isn't ill will and there isn't this diminishing and degrading of an individual by just leaving their name out of the whole story. This can be a way to ensure that you're not practicing slander or gossip in that you're now only saying this story as a beneficial way to maybe help train people of how to handle a certain thing in a certain uh, situation. I see. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, also, there is another thing that I'm not seeing. Like, um, it's been years and years that I've been interested in spirituality and self-improvement, like since my early age. And uh, for years, I've been following certain spiritual teachers, watching their uh, videos on YouTube, reading the books and stuff like that. But now, uh, since... Uh, uh, I found this group and I'm very, very uh, active here. I find that um, I may be sabotaging myself when I go back and watch those videos because I'm not seeing that um, it may kind of dilute the message uh, of the Buddha because sometimes I hear contradictory uh, stories to the teaching of the Buddha. For example, um, a lot of times they stress out that acceptance is the key, no matter what, acceptance is the key. But then uh, I find it contradictory to uh, uh, right effort because I find it very useful to watch and cut off as soon as I find something uh, that is not wholesome. But then uh, uh, if I'm accepting that, like, it, it, I just don't see having uh, right effort and acceptance going well together. Mm -hmm. So what I'm saying, uh, it seems that I'm confusing myself by watching different content. So I'm just thinking maybe, uh, maybe I should just uh, stop watching it. I don't know why is it a habit, but I've been doing that for years and years. And I find it interesting to hear um, other ways of thinking. But I'm mm -hmm. wondering if, uh, if it's um, good for me to, to watch 
different approaches. It sounds like at this stage of your development that it's more of a hindrance and more of an obstacle than it is a benefit because you're saying that it's confusing you and it's mm-hmm. making it challenging for you to understand and kind of really deeply soak in the teachings of the Buddha and then practice them. So what the Buddha shares is that once somebody understands his teachings deeply enough, they get to the point where they're no longer seeking a spiritual life because they already found one. They already know that it's his teachings that are actually leading to improvement to the condition of the mind. And essentially they've eliminated doubt, which is the second fetter. And once you have eliminated doubt and you have no doubt that it's the Buddhist teachings that are leading closer and closer to enlightenment, then someone will tend to really focus in like a microscope on the teachings of the Buddha and then develop their mind really well with that. With that said, there may be a certain time in the future, like maybe the mind's in the second, third, or fourth stage of enlightenment, and you might decide to look at what other people teach. I do this now. I'll occasionally look at other videos, but I usually only watch them for like a few minutes. I'm not watching it to learn anything. I'm just watching it to see what other people's perspective is so that when students come to me and they're talking about something or another, I'm kind of aware of what other people are talking about. So it helps me to help that student that I know a little bit of the background of what they're learning from other places. So I'm not watching it in order to learn it for myself. I'm actually watching it so I understand more about the students who are coming to get help with me because one of the most challenging for them that they experience is students who have learned other places will typically be very challenged to learn with me because their mind is still holding on to all these other teachings. A student who is willing to let those things go and learn something new, they can do really well. A student who's never learned anything at all, they do really, really well in these teachings. But for me as a teacher, it helps me to learn a bit about what other people are talking about in order for me to help that student who's coming, who has some previous experience with other teachers, because now I understand a little bit of their frame of reference and what they're talking about. But even still, those people tend to still struggle. But I feel like I can make myself a better teacher by learning a bit about what they're studying. So I watch those videos now because it helps me to prepare for that student who's coming and saying, I've studied with XYZ teacher and here's my thoughts. Your teachings conflict with that. Can you help me understand why? And then I can explain to them and help them. But for a student like you who has learned other things and now you're seeing this benefit with the Buddhist teachings and watching these other things, it seems like it's an obstacle and a hindrance. I would suggest for you to leave that to the side and just really focus in on learning the teachings of the Buddha. And then at some point in the future, as your mind is more developed and you're seeing a lot more progress, if you'd like to go watch those things to kind of compare and contrast to what you've learned, this can actually be a way to more deeply confirm that what you've learned is the truth. Because if you've been meditating in the way that the Buddha teaches, for example, for three, four, five years, and you see that your mind is deeply experiencing the qualities of enlightenment and maybe getting more and more close to enlightenment all the time. And you know that your meditation practice is impermanent, that sometimes you meditate at the morning, you know, 4 a.m., 5 a.m., 6 a.m., 8 a.m., 10 a.m., you know, it bounces around at different times. Same thing in the middle of the day, same thing in the evening. But then you watch this video where someone says, 
everybody has to meditate at 3.30 in the morning. And unless you meditate at 3.30 in the morning, you're not going to get to enlightenment. And you know yourself that you've been meditating for three to five years. Your mind has improved the condition of the quality. You're very close to getting to enlightenment. And you've been meditating at all these different hours and all these different times. But yet this teacher is maybe saying on a YouTube video that everybody has to meditate at 3.30 a.m., you identify that as that's permanence. That teacher's mind is craving permanence. They're teaching that everybody has to permanently meditate at 3.30 a.m. And you know that that's not actually possible. It's not possible for everyone to do this. And you know through your own direct experience that this is not an actual truth. It's not an actual true teaching. But right now, the mind might be getting confused with those things where it's better to leave that to the side. But once your practice is more developed over the next three to five years and you're seeing all this significant improvement, if you choose to watch those things, you'll be able to see like, ah, that's not the truth because that's permanent. It's not possible for everybody to meditate at 3.30 in the morning. And that's not what I did. And here I am three to five years down the road and my mind is very close to enlightenment perhaps. And then you know that this particular teaching is not accurate and you'll know that this teacher is not enlightened for saying those kind of things but you're not going to necessarily judge them right if your mind is eliminating the fetter of conceit you wouldn't be judging them or looking down on them or looking at them as they're a bad person but instead you'll just know that this person has misunderstood the teachings and what they're sharing then you know if they're not enlightened, they are sharing this teaching, so that means they're not enlightened. And therefore, you know that anything else that they share is you know, not necessarily the truth. And why would you spend your time to learn something that isn't the truth and it's unbeneficial? Okay, thank you very much, Teacher David. And there is one more thing, if you don't mind talking a little bit about it's about emotions. The other day, I was surprised how strong emotion came over me. <laughs> like I had, my daughter is getting married in few months. And uh, yeah, I started learning piano a little bit. And I had a vision of two of us sitting uh, and playing uh, Imagine uh, from uh, John Lennon. and. Like, I just had that vision, it just came, she's uh, in the wedding gown and two of us are playing and singing and I started crying, like, but those, but I'm like, oh my goodness, this is discontentedness. Just probably uh, uh, six, seven months ago, I would think this is a beautiful thing, that's what life is about, because a lot of times we hear this is this is very humane and we compare uh like uh, all the emotions positive and negative like um, emotions like sadness and joy and happiness and it's like a spectrum it's like a rainbow and it's like different notes on the piano and to have a good life you need all those notes like i had that kind of uh uh, I would romanticize sometimes sadness and uh, nostalgic feelings, and but now I'm like, 
Okay, hold on, hold on. This is strong feelings. So this is discontentedness. And yeah, so I was wondering if you could uh, comment on that and should I cut those things off? Uh, and uh, like, yeah, I was just wondering uh, how, how to handle this because I'm not seeing as this wedding is uh, coming close, closer and closer, I'm not seeing stronger emotion. They are, uh, they are not negative. It's just overwhelming. It's just overwhelming. If they are not uh, like, uh, I don't know, uh, it's just strong, very strong. So I'm thinking, obviously I'm attached to my daughter, you know, but uh, how healthy, where is the, healthy boundary, where is the middle ground here, you know, so if you don't mind talking a little bit about that, I would appreciate that. Sure. So it's important that when these things occur, that when discontentedness arises and you have strong feelings, don't view it as good or bad. Don't view it as positive or negative. Just view it as, okay, this is what's happening right now, is the mind is discontent. Surely, if your mind is more trained, you can observe it as a bodily sensation and you can cut it off and let it go there before it becomes a feeling in the mind. But if you didn't catch it there and it did become a feeling and you started crying and getting emotional and strong feelings, rather than viewing it as good or bad or positive or negative or that you've done something wrong or that you're a bad person, not that you've said any of those things, but I'll just share it because sometimes people who are learning with and listening to this might think that. Don't think any of those things. Just think about it. Okay, this is what's happening right now. The mind is discontent. There's feelings there, right? And what you would like to do is you would like to cut it off and let it go, realizing that it's craving, desire, attachment that's doing that, but also realize that you may not be able to do that, particularly with an attachment as strong as a daughter. So oftentimes one of the ways for us to let go of attachments is to experience the discontentedness associated with it. So I'm sure you guys have experienced like a really good cry. And after that really good cry, you actually felt better afterwards because the mind let it go and it bubbled up to the surface. You had your really good cry and then you let it go afterwards. And you're like, wow, that feels so much better because holding it in was actually quite painful. But when you let it go, and maybe part of that letting go is in this particular case, it needed to become a feeling in the mind. You know, you started crying or what have you, and then you eventually let it go. And that's part of the process of letting it go. So that's why it's important not to view it as good or bad or right or wrong or positive or negative, that this is just what's happened is, yeah, there's an attachment to my daughter. It's still there. It's great that you're aware of it and you know what that is. And now it bubbled up. It caused these feelings now there's crying okay now let's get over with it and move on and that's essentially why we have things like wedding ceremonies and we have funerals is it so that as a human being we can confront this situation because somewhere along the line humanity knew that these things were impactful and they were challenging for us to deal with so we have this ceremony of a wedding ceremony where the families can come together. There can be a bonding experience. There can be kind of the mind letting go and feeling comfortable with there goes your daughter walking out the door with a partner and they're now moving on with their life and 
They're no longer my little baby that I used to cuddle in the arms and feed milk. You know, they're growing up and being independent. And one of the signs of a really successful parent is that their child can do that. Oftentimes the mind's holding on and wanting the child to be with them permanently. But the sign of a good parent is that, yes, this person became 20, 30, 40 years old. They grew up and now they're independent and they have a job and they have a partner and they're starting a family of their own. And the mind just needs to let go and realize that this person is moving on. And that's part of being a good parent is that this has been the process of what's taken place. So these ceremonies of weddings and funerals and things like this, even birthings when we have births and stuff, this is an opportunity for people to bond and reaffirm our relationships with each other. But it's also an opportunity for the mind to let go in some situations like a wedding or a funeral. This is the time for the mind to let go. And there might be some grieving that is part of that and some strong emotions that bubble up. But once they bubble up, then the mind can let it go. And then you can have more peace and more joyful afterwards, where if you didn't confront this and you didn't go to the ceremony, for example, then the mind can oftentimes hold on because it never had that release that it needed to have. The Buddha actually describes this in his teachings. He calls it where you're basically practicing these teachings for a certain period of time. And then he talks about that they mature in release where you basically are developing the mind, developing the mind, developing the mind, training the mind, training the mind, training the mind. And then eventually the mind matures and then these fetters will release and these attachments will release. And there's actually a name for it here in Thailand. It's a Pali word. They call it piti. That when you have an attachment that comes up in the mind and then you experience the emotion, typically it's a crying or it's being upset. This is the mind experiencing piti. It's like a sadness, but it's like a joyful sadness. Some people call it rapture, where the mind is essentially letting go. There's this rapture, there's this joy almost that comes into the mind after you let this go. So this is very common. It's very normal. This is part of your journey to enlightenment is that, yeah, you need to confront the attachment that you have to your daughter. And it sounds like you're going to be doing that more and more as you get closer to the ceremony. And you would like to get to the point where your mind is able to fully let it go, where it's no longer shaken up by the attachment because you've let that go. But when it does happen, Again, don't think that you're a bad person or you've done anything wrong. It's just part of the process of letting go of an attachment. One of the ways to let go of an attachment is to actually kind of trigger the fetter to arise so that then you can cut it off and let it go. So let me give you an example. Something that they do here in Thailand is like if somebody's craving sleep, you might notice that your mind is having all this pleasure in sleeping and sleeping for a lot of time. And then when you don't sleep, then the mind gets angry and it gets hostile. So what some people will do is they will train themselves to only sleep for like three hours or maybe even not at all. And then for a couple of days, they'll just sleep three hours a day or they'll sleep not at all. Kind of trying to entice that fetter of ill will, that anger to arise in the mind with just common things that are happening in daily life because the mind didn't sleep. Now it's a bit more irritable 
But now you have to kind of cut it off and cut it off and cut it off throughout the next few days as you're kind of not sleeping so much. And this is kind of one of the trainings that people do in order to try to entice the fetter of ill will to arise. But then the mind has to cut it off constantly. So it's kind of like pulling back the carpet, letting the dust fly up in the air and now clear the dust out of the house. So this wedding ceremony to confront your daughter leaving and being with a partner, this is going to trigger that fetter. It's going to trigger the central desire of the mind wanting to hold on to your daughter. And this is like pulling back the carpet by going to the funeral, or I'm sorry, going to the ceremony and the dust arises. And now this is your opportunity to clear it out and cut it off. And then now at the other side of this, there'll be less attachment. And potentially you can even get to the point over the coming months where you've eliminated all the attachment to your daughter. You still have a relationship, you still have love, you still have care, you still have great memories, and you still spend time with her in different times, but your mind's no longer attached to her. That's what you can actually accomplish by going through experience like this, where you allow the dust to come up and then you clear it out. So this is part of what you experience. And some people do these kind of things intentionally Like say, for example, somebody was having trouble with sexual contact and maybe they are trying to eliminate sexual contact, which is part of sensual desire. But whenever they're around people that they feel attracted to, maybe this sensual desire arises in the mind or maybe going to get a like a professional massage. There's sensual desire that arises up in the mind. And each time they do this, they can cut it off and cut it off and cut it off and cut it off. And this actually helps to ultimately eliminate the central desire. Whereas if you just ran into a closet and you hid and you never saw a person who you found to be attractive and you just hid from it, meaning aversion, you're pushing it away, then you haven't really eliminated the fetter. It's still in the mind. You're just trying to avoid seeing somebody or experiencing a situation where the fetter has arisen. So there's one step of eliminating a fetter where you distance yourself from the craving. That's the first part. And then the second part is that you eliminate it from the mind. And one of the ways that some people do that is you first distance yourself from the object that the mind is craving. And then when you feel like you've gained some control of the mind, you kind of introduce the mind to that situation in order to kind of confirm that the fetter is eliminated. Let me give you another example. Say that I was having trouble with alcohol and I was regularly drinking alcohol. And now over the last five years, I've been working to eliminate my attachment and my craving to alcohol. And I'm very confident that there's absolutely no way that I'll ever go back to alcohol again. And over this five-year period, I haven't gone to a bar. I haven't walked past a bar. When I go into the store, like a grocery store, and I see the beer, maybe I kind of go in the opposite direction and I kind of go around it in order to make sure that I'm not tempted to get an alcoholic beverage. Well, now after five years, maybe the mind has deeply been trained. I know that there's absolutely no way that I'm ever going to go back to alcohol. I'm very confirmed in that. Well, now, instead of continuing to avoid these situations through avoidance, maybe when I walk into the store, I do walk past the beer 
And I'm just like, yep, there's the beer and just keep on walking. And this kind of helps to confirm the mind and makes it more solid in its decision that, yeah, I'm not going to touch alcohol ever again. So there are situations like this with certain attachments where it's actually very helpful for you to confront it, allow it to arise up in the mind and then clear it out. If you can catch it as a bodily sensation, you'd like to cut it off and let it go there. But there's going to be some situations where the attachment's just too strong and you can't catch it as a bodily sensation. And if it does come up to feelings in the mind and produces strong emotions, then okay, let's just cut it off and let it go there so that it doesn't affect the condition of the mind. And now you can more readily eliminate the mental object that's kind of motivating all this. Okay, thank you, Teacher David. So just to make sure uh, that I understand, so there is a time when bubbling up of emotions is beneficial so it can be released. So it's not always the best option to cut it off at the very root. It's always the best option to cut it off and let it go. But sometimes the attachment is going to be too strong that you're not going to be able to catch it that it's going to become a feeling in the mind. There'll be bodily sensations there, but they'll happen so quick and so rapidly and you weren't aware of them that it will become a feeling in the mind. And then when you see it there, then you cut it off and cut it off and cut it off and let it go from there. So these craving desire attachments are oftentimes very strong and it's going to bubble up in the mind. You don't want that to occur. You're not desiring for that to occur, but when it does occur, because you understand the path to enlightenment, the Eightfold Path, you understand the four foundations of mindfulness, then you know when it does bubble up, you know what to do with it. Rather than continuing to allow it to permeate in the mind and persist, you cut it off and let it go. Whether it was as a bodily sensation, a feeling, a condition of the mind, wherever you caught it, cut it off and let it go. And that's beneficial. And then having done that, you'll experience less and less strong emotions each time if you're doing the work to do the generalized training of breathing mindfulness meditation and practicing generosity what you should notice is each time this happens related to the attachment to your daughter it should potentially get less and less for you less and less intense where it may have caught you at a surprise this time in the future you won't necessarily be as surprised because you'll be tuned into it more closely and now you can catch it sooner and sooner and that's how you basically eradicate it or what the buddha describes as obliterating it at the stump because now that you're aware of this attachment and you see what it did now you can be more attentive to the mind and maybe catch it sooner next time and then it'll be less impactful less intense thank you teacher david thanks a lot Mm -hmm. you're welcome it does not appear there are any more questions at this time sir All right. Well, I'd like to thank all of you for joining for today's class. We are going to be doing a breathing mindfulness meditation class next week, even though today I have it set up as breathing mindfulness meditation on the live stream. It was actually loving kindness meditation. So next week we're going to be doing breathing mindfulness meditation together as a group to encourage, support and motivate each other in our meditation practice. This Sunday, we're going to be continuing in our retreat series with our fifth class as part of Harmony and Relationships. The class is titled Developing and Maintaining Relationships, Choosing Wholesome Friends, and a Life Partner. This is where you're going to learn how to essentially choose 
who you would like to associate with without judging others and looking down on them, just making wise choices about who you essentially surround yourself with. Because who you choose to be in your life is going to influence your progression on the path to enlightenment, either in wholesome ways or unwholesome ways. And you'd like to learn how to make choices about who to include in your life in terms of a life partner, friends, coworkers, bosses, things like this, so that as you progress in the world that you have people who are into wholesome things around you. So you'll need to learn how to navigate this in a way that you're not judging people and looking down on them, but you're just making wise choices about who to include and who to maybe not include in your life. So I'm going to be sharing that with you on Sunday. And then, of course, on Saturday, we have our Polycan in an English study group. We just started volume 13, which is titled Generosity. We're going to be studying chapters 11 through 20 this Saturday. So you're welcome to join those if you like. And all these programs are actually restarting at the beginning of the year, 2023. January 8th, we're going to be restarting the group learning program. And on January 28th, we're going to be restarting the Polycanon and English study group. Even though you can join these programs at any time that you like, but just to let you know, that's where we're going to be restarting them in case you're interested in restarting from the beginning. So thank you all for your questions. Thank you to Miranda for the moderation and thank you all for joining. We'll see you guys in a future class. Have a very lovely and wonderful rest of your day. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.